We've been going through a series called Foundational Framework. And in this series, the reason why is because if you're going to lead up to Jesus, you've got to have some understanding or some frame in order to put him in. Here's the reason why. If you deal with something like Hinduism, Hinduism worships many gods. And when you find out when a missionary gets on the field is they realize very quickly, or hopefully they've been taught before they get there, you can't just start with Jesus and, and, and introduce him to a Hindu. You need to believe in him. He's the one who forgives your sins. He's God in the flesh. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Evangelism's way easy for them. Why is that? Because there are many Jesuses on their shelf of ideas and beliefs. And so they just take Jesus and they file him in next to all these other gods that do all these other things in order to help give them a better life. So you have to have an idea of who Jesus is. And the best thing you can do is by starting with Genesis, you bring in a wrecking ball and you destroy whatever ideas of who God is and who we are and what sin is in order to establish the need for Jesus. You ask the person on the street right now, they're generally going to tell you they're a pretty good person. I mean, they've never murdered anybody. They try to help the poor. When the post office brought by those little blue bags, we put canned goods in there and set it out, right? We saw the Salvation Army guy at Christmas, and we threw a few pennies in his bucket. We're good people. What the Bible teaches us is that none is righteous, no, not one. That the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that's usually a fact that people don't want to deal with because it creates deep-seated need for rescue. And that's exactly what salvation is. So, what we've been looking at is Starting from Genesis, the major events that are going to work its way all the way up to Christ. And so what I want to do is cover with you briefly, at the very beginning, our foundational truths that we've seen so far. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. God wants to be known, and so that you can know Him, He's actually given you a book by which you can know Him, if we will just read it. One of the major problems we have in the church is no one reads their Bible. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about church by and large. People just don't spend time in the Scriptures. Or people read a little bit for the day and say, well, I'm good. I say, I don't believe it. Spending time with God. Spending time with God is paramount. And He has given us all that we need to know Him. Number two, He is eternal forever he is sovereign he has the right to rule he's the creator only he alone caused everything and all that he creates is good why because he is good god is so perfect he doesn't do anything apart from who he is does that make sense everybody with me yes okay i'm going to yell a lot today it's mother's day i'm yelling um man is i'm just kidding now, that doesn't mean anything. I'm just getting your attention. <clears throat> Man is a responsible agent. We're all held to a moral standard. All of us are held to a standard that God sets. And we're actually going to see today in the life of Solomon that the standard has not changed. It has not changed one bit. We're all held responsible. Number four, sin originates within you and I. We don't need it to come from anywhere, and we certainly don't need to take a class on it. We all just sin. We all just make our own bear trap and put our own foot in it. We have no problem doing that. It comes very naturally to us because we are fallen. And what our sin does is it separates us from God. There is our need. Because we sin, it is evidence of how much we need to be saved. The fifth one, God declares one righteous one way and one way only, and that is by faith alone. Belief is all that it is. There are no works that you can do. Why is that? Well, if I'm already a sinner in need of salvation, everything I try to bring to the table is already tainted with sin when I get to God. So I can't look at myself for a solution. The solution has to be found outside of me in order to be properly and thoroughly and eternally rescued. The sixth one. Is that right? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, okay. The glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. God's purpose in your life is not to make you happy. That's not it. It's not to make us well all the time. It is not to make us look good. I don't care how much you try to dress up when you haven't dressed up before. Everybody notice this? Tom, stand up, man. 
Look at this. Okay, okay, good, good. Now, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on prophecy, but I'm pretty sure this is the seventh sign of the apocalypse right here. It's got to be in there somewhere. I've never seen, yeah, that's what, I guess. I've never seen anything like it. God's glory is the centerpiece of all history. That's what his chief end is. And so he is going to so move and orchestrate history without violating our will or shunning our responsibility in any way whatsoever in order to move it to the end where he will be maximally glorified. And look at the last one. God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. The pinnacle of all of history is going to end in a kingdom literally on earth with a king sitting on the throne. A lot of the political minds were freaking out when our president said we're moving our embassy to Jerusalem because that is the capital. And everybody started speaking in tongues at that moment. I don't know what happened. But people lost their minds. He's only saying what the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years. This isn't controversial. But I think what makes people uneasy is the fact that it's right and it's true. I don't care what anybody tells you. The center of all of the world is Jerusalem. It is where you watch to see what God is doing because God has a plan that He has promised to fulfill. And if He doesn't fulfill it, we can't trust Him for anything. I don't care what He promises beyond that. If He doesn't fulfill His goal with Israel, we cannot trust Him at all. So now we're getting into the life of Solomon. You should be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we'll look at his birth here. In verses 24 and 25. David's kingdom was amazing. And the reason was for the prosperity of Israel at that time was because David loved God with abandon. He did not care what other people had to say. He followed God with all of his heart and committed his heart fully to Yahweh. In doing so, God greatly blessed his kingdom. Now, when sin came into the picture, we had a problem. If you remember, he was out on a rooftop and he was supposed to be out at war leading his troops. And instead, he gazed down and saw a girl bathing. And life changed for him. And he immediately sent people out to get that girl. He must be with her now. He doesn't care about anything surrounding it. His lust, his emotion was driving the decision. We could stop right there and apply that all day long and pray and go home. But because you know I'm a person of many words, we won't do that, right? So having done that, she conceives a child. It comes to find out that her husband is actually one of the most faithful and devoted soldiers that David has in his army. And so he tries to bring Uriah home. Maybe if I bring him home from war, he'll get with his wife and all of a sudden it'll look like it's his kid. We'll be good. But Uriah is so faithful to the cause of David and wants to represent his kingdom and the king faithfully that he sleeps on David's doorstep rather than going home to be with his wife. Now that doesn't work. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, I tell you what, put Uriah up front in the battle and when it gets hot, when everything's going crazy, I want you to call everybody else back and leave Uriah up front so that he will be killed. You ever thought about murdering someone to cover up your sin? That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? But notice, even someone whose heart was after God could still go to those links. Because let's be honest, we'll do almost anything it takes so that people won't see who we really are. And yet we forget this one vital truth. God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from His sight. We weren't so quick as to whip out the fig leaves before He could catch a glimpse. He sees it all. 
So in doing this, David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. She gives birth to the child. And God lets David know, I'm going to take the life of this child. And so David fasts and he pleads with God not to take the life of this child. And the child dies. The beautiful point of grace that comes out of this is in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into went in to her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now Yahweh loved Solomon, loved him, and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh. And here's the interesting thing. We never find Solomon called Jedidiah in the Scriptures. Now, probably how you answer that is Jedidiah was his given name at birth, but Solomon was his name as king or, or his throne name. It was not out of the ordinary in the Middle East for a king to have a certain name and then assume another name. We kind of see this go on with popes now. You know, the real name is, is I don't know, yeah, Fred or Gerald Misogynes or something weird like that, and then all of a sudden they're Pope Gregory the Ninth or something like that. So it's not totally out of, out of the way in order to understand something like that. But notice what it says. They named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. And the interesting thing about this is the Lord loved him. The Lord had a special inclined affection towards this child now solomon's name means shalom which you're familiar with the hebrew word for what peace peace is what his name means and what's interesting is is his reign was a reign of peace now if you would turn over with me to first kings first kings chapter two and what's interesting about first kings two is that solomon is now full grown and david is getting ready to pass away and so he calls Solomon to his side, and he is going to give him some final instructions. Now I encourage you, if you have the time throughout this week, to read all the spots that I'm not going to be hitting today in 2 Kings so it fills in maybe some of the questions that you have. Uh, I'm not going to go over everything because of the interest of time, but I do want to touch on major points that we should see. So notice chapter 2 of 1 Kings, as David's time to draw to die drew near he charged solomon his son saying i am going the way of all the earth be strong therefore and show yourself a man and here's the first thing he tells him keep the charge of yahweh your elohim to walk in his ways to keep his statutes his commandments his ordinances and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now stop for just a second. There's the first benefit of Solomon upholding the law. David has seen both perspectives, or I'm sorry, both spectrums of what goes on in this situation. He knows what it is to be in intimacy with the Lord by obeying His commandments and following His ways, but he also knows that when he got in trouble with Bathsheba, what it is to stand at a place where the fellowship relationship has been broken, because when that happened for David, his kingdom was never the same after that. It tarnished everything it was like a clear pond that somebody had thrown a brick into and the ripples went all the way to the edge so notice the first thing he wants to tell him is if you want to have success as a king follow what god says do exactly what he has commanded you listen to him and embrace it and solomon if you have to change your life to do it it's worth it stick with god always now let me interject this real quick before we move forward. If you'll think back a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at Deuteronomy 17. And the interesting thing about Deuteronomy 17 is that Moses tells the people, when you ask for a king for yourself, the first thing that that king needs to do is get out the first five books of the Old Testament and needs to get out his handy little quill here and he needs to write for himself in his own handwriting the first five books in the presence of the priests. That way they can check his work, they can bring clarity to any questions that he has, and if for no other reason, maybe he's the only person that can read his own handwriting so there's no excuse, right? Maybe that's a reason. 
But he tells him, you're to have this with you always. And you are to meditate on it always. And when you get to the end of Deuteronomy, you back up and you start in Genesis and you read it over and over and over and over again. Why? So that you will be able to rule effectively as the king, as God would have you do. Now keep that in your mind because we're going to see where it plays an extremely important part. Let's look at verse 4. So notice, keep the law, you may succeed in all you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now you might say, wait a second, Pastor, I was here last week and we talked all about how God made this unconditional covenant with David that could never be thrown away and we saw over and over forever, 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 forever. If forever is mentioned all the time that God's going to fulfill this promise no matter what, why is there a stipulation and condition here in this fourth verse telling Solomon, if this happens, I'll follow through. Why is that? Well, here's the thing. When God gave a covenant to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you land, seed, and a blessing. It's an unconditional covenant. But when God made the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, it was a conditional covenant. If you will obey me, then I will protect you. Then I will bless you. Then I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I will fight for you. I will be your peace and your stronghold. But if you do not obey, I am no longer obligated to protect you. Instead, I will discipline you. And I'll even use other pagan nations to do it. Now how does that factor out? Well, here's the thing. Will God fulfill His promise of David's throne lasting forever? Yes, He will. We know that in the fact that we're anticipating the return of the Messiah. But does that mean that a king can get on the throne and do whatever he wants and still expect blessing from God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Blessing is contingent upon obedience in this situation. So that's how you answer that. Now, when you read through this, you're going to see verses 5-9. through There's a lot of blood. David says, hey, remember this guy? He was shady. Make sure you take care of him. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that Solomon's reign begins with that but i want to show you two things look at verse six and look at this so act according to your what wisdom go down to verse nine now therefore do not let him go unpunished for you are a what wise man this is before what we commonly know about solomon being blessed with wisdom He's already wise. He already has wisdom. There's something about him that he's already exercised that that David in his discernment has seen and that the Lord has seen fit to anoint him as king. There's something before he ever even asks for wisdom that he's already got a track record that is very interesting. So now if you would, move with me over to 1 Kings 3. And this is an interesting chapter because of some things you go, I just don't quite understand that. Don't feel bad. I don't either. I don't get it, okay? 1 Kings 3, verse 1. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with, of all people, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, does that bother anybody? Is that a little alarming? Why is that? Somebody tell me. What do you think is alarming about that? Talk to me, somebody. The Egyptians worship many gods, so he's in an alliance with pagans. That's a problem. He was told not to marry a whole lot of women. We remember that? Deuteronomy 17, 17. If you want to write that down in your margin, what else? It's disobedient. Why is it disobedient? Okay, so lining up with Egypt. Does anybody think it's interesting that at one time Israel was Egypt's slaves? And now Egypt is offering Solomon, the king of Israel, his daughter. Here, take her, marry her. But nobody's hit on the really alarming part. Anybody know? What is it? Somebody say it. Come on, don't be shy. I'll tell you if you're wrong. (laughs) What's that? Yeah, I will. I will. Does everybody see in this first verse there's a lack of trust in God? 
I mean, think about it. Why would kings marry the daughters of other kings of other nations? What's it say? To keep them from attacking. A marriage alliance. But we're family, bro. You can't attack me. Right? We got a family reunion next month. We can't attack right now. I'm bringing chicken. You attack me, no chicken. I don't know. But notice the big thing here. If Yahweh God is your protector and your warrior and the one who fights for you, which is in the part of the book that he hand-copied and had checked by everyone, why would you step into this situation? There's something deeper going on. We're going to see it here in a minute. So notice he says, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on, what is that? High places. If you want an amazing word study to do throughout the week, or it'd probably take you months actually, high places. That's what you want to look up, high places. <clears throat> Does anybody know why high places is a big deal? That's where the pagan gods were worshipped. The idea was is since the pagan gods were believed to come from the air, and when we talk about gods and graven images and idols and all of these things, we're simply talking about demonic fallen angels that have so deceived people into thinking these images are worthy of worship over Yahweh that they thought that the taller they were, the higher the hill, the greater the mountain, the closer that they were to their God. Everybody see how that works? Now here's the thing. Do you have to get up high to worship God? No. If it was to be closer to God, I'd be standing behind the pulpit right now, right? That's higher. That's closer. But that doesn't make any sense. Why is that? Because God is so intimate, that's not how you draw near to Him. He is omnipresent. Everywhere present. There is not a place you are where He is not. So that's not how that works. Notice it violates a basic attribute of God. So, notice, the people were still sacrificing on the high places. Make sure you mark it with your Grace Bible Church handy-dandy pen. Because there was no house built for the name of Yahweh until those days. Now watch this, verse 3. Now Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David, except, here's the one gap. Watch this. He sacrificed and burned incense on the what? High places, there it is again. So we got a problem here. Now let me go ahead and give you this because I know everybody's going to go home Monday through Saturday and research this thoroughly, right? Deuteronomy chapter 12, if you want to write it. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is the, is the chapter given in the law that speaks of what is known as the theology of sacred spaces. God will tell you where you are to worship Him. God will let you know when He chooses a place that that's where everybody is to go. And if you go somewhere else... You are on the pagan side in unbelief trying to worship him. Notice everybody's natural inclination was, well, how high up can I get? And that's how I'll worship Yahweh. Well, you don't worship Yahweh that way. That's how they worship all these false gods. But I'm sincere. As long as, I mean, we sound like Linus waiting for the great pumpkin to show up sometimes. But as long as I'm sincere, that's what matters. It's like he's not coming to this patch. It's no different. God will not let you worship Him in a place He has not approved. It's impossible. But notice, nope, we're going to keep going to the high places. Nope, we're going to keep going to the high places. And Solomon followed God in everything except for one thing. I'm going to go to high places and I'm going to sacrifice. Notice what it says here. Verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. I can't get high enough to worship God is the idea. So notice, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Amazing. Now here's the thing, is he worshiping Yahweh? Actually, he is. He's worshiping Yahweh, but the problem is the location. Location, location, location. See, this is why Deuteronomy chapter 12 is important, and I encourage you guys to read it. The Theology of Sacred Spaces, verse 5. In Gibeon... Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and notice this, and Elohim said, ask what you wish me to give you. Now we're all immediately going, isn't that nice? Why hasn't God showed up to me and said, ask me what you would give me? 
Would that be nice if he did that for you? I'm curious, what would you ask for? A good Mother's Day, right? Right? That's what it is. What would you ask for? Who, who would ask for salvation? Are you not saved? Do we talk about the gospel? No, what do you mean? Go ahead. I'm just kidding. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. What else? What would you ask for? Let me ask you this. Is there a temptation to think of God like you've got a lamp and you're like, come on, give me three wishes, right? Or you're one of those machines where you go pluck it in and the, the guy's like, ask what you want, gives you a fortune, that kind of thing. We have a lot of views about God and what this situation might look like that are completely unbiblical. Watch what happens. Verse 6, then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father. Two things to notice. Number one, the word loving kindness, hesed, loyal love, is the idea is what it is. He has loyally shown his love. He has not stopped loving in the situation. And notice that he's also aware. He's, he, he, is, he is acutely aware of David's relationship with Yahweh. His dad lived such a life with Yahweh that it was undeniable the impression that it had left on Solomon. Now, this ain't a Father's Day sermon, but everybody take that one and put it in the bank, right? Notice this. Uh, the loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. Notice his reputation. And you have reserved for him this great loyal love, loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. Now, O Yahweh, my Elohim, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Does everybody see his humility here? Man, you had an incredible stellar relationship with my dad, and I'm nothing in this situation here i am king and i'm not even really for sure what's going on i mean he's not president he's king but regardless verse eight anybody get that everybody asleep is that not funny verse eight your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted so Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? God, all I want to do is pass on wisdom to your people and lead them in a direction where they can discern what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. This is a pretty good request, isn't it? Notice it's not about him. It's about being used by God to so affect other people and how they will live and steward their lives. Verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of... Is that what it says? What do you see about how it's spelled? What is it? Adonai. Notice that. Notice they don't use Yahweh here. Notice, whoever was recording this decided that it was important to inject, anytime you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, it means master is what it means. It was pleasing in the sight of the master that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you've not asked for yourself a long life, nor asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning heart, so that, here's the reason, there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will be there, sorry, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. One like you. Solomon, you are completely unique. And all the selfish stuff you didn't ask for, I'm going to give it to you anyway because of your heart and what you asked for. Is that amazing? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Verse 14. I, th th there's, always, there's always a naysayer here. I don't know what it is. Always a naysayer. 
Verse 14. So now watch this. He gives us incredible blessing, but it doesn't stop God from warning him. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, there's your example, Solomon, then I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem, and he stood before the ark of the covenant of Adonai, everybody see that, the master, and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. Now take your Bibles, if you would, and turn over. You see here, 1 Kings 4. Look at verse 29. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. And here's what's interesting about that word mind. The Hebrew word actually means heart or inner self or disposition. Gave him a breadth of disposition like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the son of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. How would you want to be one of these guys that was listed as somebody being smarter than you were? That's not a very fun place, is it? So notice this, verse 32. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. In fact, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those three are specific works that were written by Solomon that we have evidence of his wisdom, and we should definitely read those if you get an opportunity. Verse 33, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. In other words, he even had knowledge of botany and also zoology. He's a science textbook running around places. Verse 34, men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's popularity has skyrocketed. Not only does he have all of this wisdom, he's got the riches to boot, he's got the honor going on, he's a writing machine. I mean, just what we have right now in Proverbs, you could spend the rest of your life in Proverbs and never fully grasp the depths of everything that Solomon has put in that book for us to understand. It is incredible the extent of, war, of work that he was used by the Holy Spirit to bring out. But let's move forward here. 1 Kings 8. In fact, I'm going to skip that little section there. 8.54 is where we want to be. Again, you have notes, you can read through your notes. 854. What has happened now is David desired to build a house for God. But David's hands were so filled with bloodshed because he was a warrior and he had killed a lot of people. And God told him, you cannot build a place for me. Your hands are too tainted. However, I'll allow for your son to do it. And so all the materials were gathered together to go. Solomon builds the temple, the house for God, sets it up and even brings in some of the best craftsmen that the world had to offer in order to make sure that it was a place of incomparable beauty. So in doing that, he dedicates the temple, gives a prayer, commissions all of the people. And what we're seeing here is the end of that chapter eight, verse 54. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to Yahweh, he arose from before the altar of Yahweh, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven. And he stood, and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he, now notice this, promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise which he promised through Moses his servant. May Yahweh our Elohim be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. Now does everybody see? This idea of him wrapping this up and he is commissioning all the people and he's saying, God 
If you don't do anything else in this nation, move our hearts toward you. Move our hearts towards you. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good prayer for today. Move our hearts towards you. Now, I want you to pay attention because we're going to wrap it all together at the end and show you why this is important. Verse 59. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before Yahweh, be near to Yahweh our Elohim day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. So that, here's the reason why their hearts need to be inclined and that their purposes need to be in line with his law. Here's the reason why. So that, all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is Elohim. There is no one else. Or let me put it this way for you. The whole calling on God to incline a heart towards obedience and to walk in the ways of God is for one purpose. Your life serves as a blazing witness to the truth that you have. Israel's purposes were to be served out as a witness to the nation's. Why is that? Well, because they're worshiping down to false gods. They're bowing down to them. They can't see, can't think, can't speak. They even had to chisel them out of stone or craft them out of wood themselves. And they've gone as crazy as to not only offer fruits, vegetables, and animals, but even to bring their own children and kill their children and sacrifice them before these false gods. Tell me, the, 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 the demonic is not going on there. It's insane. And so notice, the whole purpose of Israel being moved or being prayed upon that their hearts would be inclined towards God and asking for God to get in there and to draw them unto Himself so that they will live out His purposes and so they would be a shining witness to this insane amount of darkness that's going on. Does everybody see a connection between there and maybe what's going on today? Maybe it is rampant disobedience within the church that keeps people from believing in our Christ. Now, I understand we're supposed to point people to Jesus because only he's perfect. But guys, let's not pretend like he hasn't given us the spirit, that he hasn't given us his word, that he hasn't provided a fellowship, that we don't have direct access to him through prayer. I mean, let's be honest. We could know a ton about the word if we would just participate in it, right? Asking for God to have an effect in our lives so that we live differently, all of a sudden we'll find that all the little pagan things that we like to dribble our fingers all over would suddenly be cast away from us because Christ in His glory is infinitely more great and He needs to be represented faithfully in my life. That's the difference. Because there's a lot of dabbling going on in the church today. Verse 61. Let your heart, he's speaking to Israel. Now watch this. Remember, this is Solomon. Let your heart therefore, what's therefore, therefore, because of that purpose, and how would it impress the nations? Now watch this. Let your heart therefore be, this is, this is, where's the microphone? There it is. Click your pen. Here we go. Be wholly devoted to Yahweh our Elohim. Everybody see wholly devoted. Does anybody have a little number next to it for a footnote? What's it say? What's your footnote say there? What's it say? Complete with Yahweh. Now, now think about that. Let your heart, therefore, be complete with Yahweh. No competition. No other competing gods. No other competing lusts. No other competing influences. The idea is complete with Him, intact with Him, undivided from him does that make sense okay now here's why this is important pay attention move down to nine nine chapter nine verse four notice he says here solomon has finished the the house god gives great promise to him and then he says in verse four as for you if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you and go and serve other what? There it is, mark it, other gods, and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land. Notice, king, if you turn your heart away from me and you bow down to other gods, the first thing I will do was eject your people out of the land. 
Now, why is this interesting? Well, remember his prayer? It wasn't about Solomon. It was give me discernment for the sake of your people. You think Solomon cares for the people? Absolutely he does. And he wants nothing more than for them to walk in obedience to everything that God has commanded. What is the first spanking that takes place? If someone turns away to God's, and notice that God's not conflicted about this. Notice he's not like, if you go and worship stone, if you go and worship woods, if you go and worship the boogeyman or the tooth fairy, he's not bringing that up. He understands they are little G gods, demons, that we're talking about behind this whole thing. If you go and you worship them, the very first thing is going to happen is the land will be evacuated. I will take those people out. So he says here, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast I will cast out of my sight. In other words, this beautiful temple that you've built for me with my name, where I told you that I would dwell, I'll crumble it to the ground. Here's what he says moving on here. So Israel would become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. In other words, there'll be there'll be a, a when when they're spoken of, the only thing that will roll off people's lips is shame and humiliation about them and the position they put themselves in. He says, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss. Ooh, that's nasty, right? And say, Why has Yahweh done thus to the land and to this house or to the temple? And they will say, Because they forsook Yahweh, their Elohim, and brought their fa- who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and, a- and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, Yahweh has brought all this adversity on them. Is the warning clear? Is it? Who's asleep? Is everybody with me? Okay, I don't have to yell. I know he's asleep. I get it. Yeah, I don't want to wake him up. That'd be bad. Traumatic church experience. Some of you are having that right now. Let's move on to chapter 11. Do you think that God has been clear so far in what we've seen in his relationship with Solomon? Do you see that he keeps warning Solomon because God is also very clear about one thing? It is possible for anyone to fall away. This whole thing about whenever people were serving the Lord and then they fall away and they get into all kinds of sins and all of a sudden we're going to say that they're not saved anymore. Number one, we're not the judge of the world. We can't see their hearts. We have no business making an eternal declaration like that. The Bible actually tells us not to. Paul even says, I don't even judge myself in these matters. I leave it up to the judge to take care of that stuff. So anytime that we want to make some kind of declaration that someone who once walked with the Lord is now a lost person or was lost all along... It's extremely dangerous ground because of what we're going to see here. Anybody can fall away no matter how devoted they are. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. It would be Mother's Day that we're talking about this subject, wouldn't it? (laughs) Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Remember, that was the first thing that we kind of scratched our heads and we said, man, what in the world is he doing here? But notice, she may have been the first, but she wasn't the last. There are Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which, now watch this, whoever, we don't know who wrote 1 Kings, but whoever wrote this knew their Old Testament, man. Look what they said here. From which the Lord, Yahweh, had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for, here's the reason why, They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Women have the power to turn your heart to another god. (laughs) And there is someone sitting between Tom and his wife right now. And he's thinking with these fancy shiny shoes he's got on now, he's going to be able to make it out of here alive. (laughs) I'm going to tackle him for you just so you can whack him once for me, okay? (laughs) I feel like I need a shovel to put in his hand now. That's great. Solomon held fast to these in love. And he had 700 wives. 700 wives. 
There's three categories here. We just hit one. There's 700 wives, there's princesses, and then there's 300 concubines. I asked my dad about this one time. He said, well, the first wife was God's will. The second wife that he married was sin, and all the others were payment because of the second one. (laughs) Now, he didn't tell me that when my mother was around. But I hope she's listening to this right now. Here, cracking her knuckles. It's good. So notice the end of that verse 3, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not, now pay attention, holy devoted does everybody remember where we saw that before holy devoted it's the exact same word it's the exact same charge that after dedicating the temple and after he had been on his knees with his arms raised up praising god for his presence to be dwelling in the temple and then he commissioned all of israel stay faithful lord incline our hearts towards this end we need to represent you so that we're a shining beacon to the nations of the goodness of who yahweh is everybody make sure that you are wholly devoted to the lord complete with him intact undivided and who did it fall on solomon Solomon was no longer intact. He was divided with Yahweh. Notice, not as the heart of his father had been, David. Verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is a fertility god. And Israel already had dabblings with them in Judges chapter 3. Notice, is the goddess of the Sidonians. And after that, Milcom. Milcom there, that name. If you go down to verse 7 towards the end, you'll see the word Molech there. Both of those are believed to be pretty much one and the same God that was worshipped at that time. The word Molech or Milcom comes from the Hebrew word Melech, which means king is the idea. So it's actually a god, a demon that had put on themselves the name of a king in order to be worshipped in that time. And notice what it says, Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Verse 6, Solomon did what was, what is it? It's evil. Notice that God isn't like, well, he's just trying to find himself in college right now. That's not what's going on. It's evil. It's straight evil. God doesn't play around like we do with sin. It's evil. It's evil in the sight of Yahweh. And he did not follow Yahweh fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a what? Come on, man, really? No, I'm, I heard you. I heard you. But what I'm saying is, is, has he not learned? In fact, here's the amazing thing. If you read through the first five books, you find out, I believe in Deuteronomy, especially in chapter 12, that what was supposed to happen when the children of Israel went into this land to take it as an inheritance is everything that represented pagan worship was to be torn down and burned and crushed and destroyed and crumbled. He said there is not to be an inkling of anything about their pagan gods so that you won't be influenced. This is all repercussions of prior disobedience. This is consequences flowing out. And now Solomon not only is just worshiping against the ones that were already made that weren't turned, torn down, now he's building new ones for people. He's worshiping God like people worship demons. That's what's going on here. So notice he built a high place for Chemosh. Chemosh, that word means subdue. And that has uh, ties to child sacrifice going on there, just like Molech does, the detestable idol of Moab, and on the mountain, which is the east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. And here's the reason why it says it turned away from Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. Because we've already had all of this evidence beforehand of who the one true God is. All these other little g-gods are trying to vie for attention and trying to lead people astray. No, no, no. Only Yahweh is the God of Israel. There is no other competition. Nobody else chose them as a people. They are specially chosen by God. And so he says here, excuse me, who had appeared to him twice, verse 10, he commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what Yahweh had commanded. So Yahweh said to Solomon, because you have done this, 
and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant, which happens. Verse 12, nevertheless, now here's what's amazing. I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, what? Think about this, folks, moms, dads. The way you live in your relationship to the Lord now, you'll pour over onto your kids in ways you can't even fathom. If God would have wanted to be perfectly just and swift at that moment, he could have walked in, picked up Solomon, and threw him out of Israel completely and disbanded the whole thing. He could have done it and nobody could have said, you're wrong. No. But because David, his father, so loved God, he held off on his punishment and waited. So now, watch this, but I will tear it out of the hand of your, what? What's that look like for your kids? Or let's say it this way, what type of life are you cultivating now with the Lord, and what will it look like if it spills over to your offspring? It's pretty serious to think about. Notice it says here, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen here's what you find out happened solomon dies in fact solomon has immediate conflict after this from now on solomon dies and his son rehoboam becomes king there is one who is a rebellious man who comes back from egypt who had fled to egypt but yet he comes back after solomon dies he was the one who's the main instigator in the whole problems that solomon has and what the lord does is he actually tears the kingdom in half The northern half becomes what's known as Israel, and ten tribes go that way. The southern half becomes known as Judah, because Judah is the dominant tribe, also with little Benjamin that's there with him. Rehoboam rules the bottom half. Jeroboam rules the top half. And now you have everything that God had promised that he would see fulfilled if people would just obey him. Done. Now somebody asked a really good question. I think it was Kevin asked me a good question. How do people deal with the failure of Solomon at the end of his life? What do they say about him? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is after Proverbs. It's believed that Ecclesiastes was written at the end of his life when he was close to dying. And the reason is, is because he pretty much says, I have all the money in the world and I can do anything that I want to do and there's no experience that's been withheld from me whatsoever. And what I found out is that everything I try to do or commit my heart to or invest my money in or no matter how great I think that vacation is going to be or I've been to Disney World 12 times and decided to buy it or whatever it is, it's all vanity. And the word vanity is the equivalent of when you see your breath on a cold day and you breathe it out like that and you see it for a second and then it's gone and you can't even catch it and so i'll go ahead and warn you ecclesiastes is an incredibly extremely depressing book because we can often put ourselves in the shoes and go yeah i'm into that yeah i like that yeah i've wondered about that and what he's saying is it's nothing it's all nothing it all ends in nothing it's all fruitless it's all vain it's all a waste of time But not until the end do you get any kind of hope. And I tell you this, this hasn't changed much from today. Chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. I want to read to you the last two verses. Here's his assessment before the end of his life. The conclusion, when all has been heard is, and here it is, You want to know the key to a happy life or the seven steps to a better you or something like that? It's not what the Bible teaches. Here's the key to life. Fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Now here's the great blessing that you and I have today being in the church age. We actually know who the Messiah is. We actually don't have to go to a temple and try to supply some sort of animal to have our sins atoned for, which we're going to have to end up doing again the next year anyway. 
But we have a perfect Savior who has died completely and sufficiently for all of us. And by belief in Him, you are given eternal life and you're forgiven of your sins. But here's the thing. Let's not pretend like in the midst of a Christian life, all of a sudden everything is immediately better. You may have confidence and hope and joy, and that's a that's beautiful and amazing thing. But it doesn't stop the world from coming after you. If anything, Satan has become more of an enemy towards you. He's not worried about messing with lost people because they're lost. He doesn't have to deceive them too badly. They're already deceived. They're already going to hell. He's not worried about that. But as far as believers living obedient lives, and why is that? Because when we live obedient lives that are intimate with the Lord, we all of a sudden became radiating beacons in order to tell the world about the goodness that they're missing. Even if it's going bad. Even if your life is a mess. Even if the walls are coming in all around you and you don't even know how you're going to survive throughout the day. God has not stopped being God. And so when you grab onto that truth and hold fast to it, He is then doing a work in you that you could never conjure on your own. For the Christian, this precept hasn't changed. Christ has given us commandments. We're not held to the Ten Commandments, but He's commanded us to love one another. Has He not? Yeah. Has He commanded us to read His Word? Has He commanded us not to forsake the gathering together of one another? I know you guys are in for Mother's Day, but I want to see you next week. I'm expecting that. I don't think it's wrong not to. And if you live somewhere else, go to church somewhere else. But go. Be there. Be filled. Why? Because when it's all boiled down, when you get rid of life and you think through all the garbage you've had to deal with, here's what matters. Here's what stays, even though other things change. Fear God and obey Him. That's it. Fear God and obey Him. If you don't know Him, then my call to you is believe in Him. Why? Because there's no reason not to. That's the beautiful thing about the death of Jesus. It not only paid for your sin, it removed every objection that you would have for not having a relationship with God. Because you don't have to bring anything. You have a meal, you feel obligated to bring something. You go to a Christmas party, you feel obligated to bring something. You're going to a poker game to hang out, you're at least bringing pretzels. Somebody's taking you somewhere, you're at least scraping for gas money. But when you come to Jesus, you don't bring anything. You bring two empty hands that are broken and bleeding. And probably the plea of, Lord, I can't. But I know you can. And you have. And you did. And it's done. Pray with me. Father, the life of Solomon is beautiful and it's tragic. And it tells us what is possible in walking in intimacy with You. And as a loving Father, You bless us in that relationship, but You also warn us of possible pitfalls and consequences and the ramifications if we are wayward. Father, You show to us very clearly what it is not just to know You, but to grow in You. And His life is on full display for us to examine. And we see where He went wrong. That His lust overcame His God. That His physical desire choked out the spiritual. That somehow He became convinced even with what we know of the deep relationship he had, somehow he became convinced that there were other gods that could supply something that you could not. And Father, how we run the risk of that trap daily, thinking that somebody or something else could provide for us what you've already freely given. 
Lord, that is dangerous, dangerous thinking. And if it is a path that we maybe look down and find our feet upon, I pray, Lord, we would repent. Somehow we think making a name for ourselves, coming out on top, having the most toys makes us the winner, being rich, squashing those who hate us, whatever it is, whatever evil lurks in our hearts, God, we need to confess it and realize You are our protector. You are our guide. You are a provider. You are our salvation. It's only because of Jesus that any of this is even possible. So Father, I pray everyone in here, and myself especially, teach us to fear Your name. Teach us to walk according to Your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.